Thanks for joining us for our look at the wineries and history of the Spring Mountain Appalachian. I'm delighted to be joined right now by Riley Keenan of Keenan Winery. Riley, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You are like a walking history of Keenan Winery. You are the third generation of this winery. That's what so I've been told. Yeah. Well, that's a narrative that I choose to believe. It's very beneficial for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, Keenan Winery was founded by my grandfather, Robert Keenan, back in 1974. Our first official estate vintage uh, came about in 1977, and uh, my grandfather manned the helm uh, through the 80s and about half the 90s, um, up until he got to the point where he decided to take his foot off the gas pedal a little bit and uh, approached my father, his son, um, with the idea of, uh, of taking over, um, at which point he did in 1996, and he's been running it full-time ever since, um, and I've been plotting my hostile takeover for some time now right? Uh, in order to get that third generation going. How much do you know about your grandfather's vision for the winery when he first started it? Um, from the story that I've been told was uh, his first marriage, his in-laws um, were a fairly um, sort of well-heeled family. They had some pretty, pretty nice success business-wise um, earlier in, in their family history. And, um, and my grandfather was very much sort of the product of Irish immigration, felt himself very much of a country bumpkin, kind of a hayseed, and uh, definitely felt out of place when he would hang out with his in-laws um, in the holidays. And he learned pretty quickly that they were obsessed with French Bordeaux. It was their, their sort of pet passion and uh, something that he decided if he learned as much as he could about French Bordeaux, he could sort of ingratiate himself with the well-heeled in-laws. And so he, he threw himself deep into that study. And I think he got to a point where uh, he stopped caring what his in-laws thought about him, but his passion for wine continued um, and then made it his mission at some point in the 60s to recreate his, his, his uh, very specific passion, which was right bank Bordeaux. He wanted a place in California where he could recreate that style. He knew he wanted elevation. He wanted a place to stress the vines, create dimension, depth, and structure. Um, and I think uh, in the end, it boiled down to Howe Mountain and Spring Mountain. Um, and I think the deciding factor ultimately was the prevalence of, of groundwater here. He wanted mm -hmm. a, a bankable natural resource that uh, he wouldn't have to worry about for decades to come. And was it always planned and intended that your father would take over the business? Or did he have other plans for himself? Um, I think this is that's that's a story that I'll let my dad tell in depth. Uh, his relationship with his father was a little bit more complicated. Um, and p potentially a little bit more icy at times. Um, so I think at certain points in my dad's young professional career, um, right out of high school, he, he went pretty much right into to carpentry. He was a, a specialized carpenter that uh, eventually um, broadened his sort of uh, professional spectrum to general uh, contracting and housing. And I think there was a long time there where he never intended to turn back and, and uh, have anything to do with his father, let alone... Um, work professionally in the same career that he did um, up until I think tension softened in the 90s. I don't know how else to say it other than uh, other than that's kind of what happened. But I think there's a while there where my dad was content just staying at construction and, and for wine just being something he did at dinner with his wife. Um, so fortuitously for me and the future generations, we're, we're back in business and, 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 uh, and really never stopped. When your father did take it over, how was his vision different? What did he see for the future of the winery? Um... I think uh, primarily, I think there was more of a balance um, that was struck between uh, uh, the, the traditional winemaking philosophy remained very consistent. I think everyone would say that. But I think what changed is we struck a better balance 
in developing wines that were both uh, supremely ageable for your cellar, but also wines that were approachable and downright enjoyable when they're still young. Current releases, I think my grandfather went full bore to the one side of the spectrum that included just torturing as many of the vines as you could, all dry farmed, 13% alcohol or less, wines that shouldn't be touched for the first 10 years of their lives, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that worked out well for him. I think business models have changed though, and you can't really be sitting on a, on a current release for years and years and years before customers start buying it. So we, I think that's a, a new balance that my dad certainly felt out when he took over, and I think that's what we, we continue today. And what are your earliest memories of the winery? Uh, n almost entirely negative. Um, I started working there, must have been when I was 11 or 12 years old, summers in between school, uh, mostly just raking leaves and cleaning barrels and doing the, the general cellar monkey um, responsibilities. I think even, even to this day, my business card still says raker of leaves. I can't, I can't shake that title, <laughs> even though we've upgraded to an electric leaf blower and those types of things. Um, I, I, I think at the time I'd much rather have been at like Lego camp or something rather right. than up in the cold <laughs> and raking leaves and whatnot. And did you think you'd wind up in the business? No, I, 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 you wanted to escape. No, I think the decision became very, it was very slow and gradual. I, I occupied various roles within the sort of distribution channels of this world of wine. So I've, I've been a Somme, a server I've imported, um, from France. I've been a lowly sales rep running my own territory in Georgia. So I've sort of had stations all up and down this business, um, mostly for lack of better ideas for what to do. And then that, that sort of organically turned into a general, a, a genuine interest in this, in this business and, and actually seeing, um, all of the interesting fun things that you can accomplish while working in this, this career path, which before it just seemed like a whole lot of cleaning and a lot of flying, which it is, but uh, there's a lot more beyond that that uh, you don't quite see until you work within the business. Having grown up here, how do you see Spring Mountain as, as distinguished from, different from some of the other areas in the valley? Yeah, uh, well, I think just, just on site when you first get here, you, you notice how sort of green and verdant most of this place is and, and that it's, it's largely not vineyards or developed space. It's truly just mostly wild areas and uh, green forested zones and streams and creeks and, and, uh, and just a really just a green area pocketed by small little parts of vineyards. So for me, this is one of the only places in Napa that still remains sort of untamed and wild um, just, from, uh, from, just from the outside looking in. Um, and that's also one of the cold climate regions too. We're right up there with Carneros and averaging a little bit lower temperature during the day, um, which is pretty great because that's good for our, our acidity and our, our sort of bright profile that we typically get with our wines here. Um, and, and in my opinion, it's, it's the best mountain AVA in Napa. And I say that with the experience of a man who spent very little time at any of the other AVAs in Napa. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your vision for the winery and what you would like to accomplish. Um, yeah, take over from dad and then immediately sell to Gallo, I think was the, <laughs> <laughs> the plan. Um, no, uh, he still doesn't find that very funny. I'm going to keep plugging away at that joke until he laughs. But um, I think, you know, continuing the success that my dad has, has really started, which is developing really long-lasting relationships in a lot of our um, on our markets outside of California, which are important for us, like Texas and Florida and, uh, and Oklahoma, and then, and then extending beyond that, assuming everything continues the way it does, I think using that, that position of privilege to then continue to slowly close the focus of what we do to continue producing single vineyard stuff that really highlights just the mountain. 
as opposed to Napa in general, which is, which is, I mean, making Napa wines great, but I think, uh, our, our calling has always been highlighting this mountain in particular and with 47 acres with which to do that that's plenty um, in order to accomplish some really cool single vineyard stuff some of which we already do and then there's more areas in which we can expand and become more focused and I think that that'll come with, come with time talk a little bit about the wine the wine um, well we we focus on a lot of the same things that most people focus here on spring mountain which is predominantly merlot that's usually what we're we're mostly known for followed quickly by cab franc and chardonnay um of course cabernet keeps the lights on here half of half of our volume is typically de uh, dedicated to cabernet um but i often like to say that our hearts and our minds are mostly focused on on what we do with merlot we'll do five or six pure expressions of merlot uh, several of which will be single vineyard any given year um for cabernet that's usually just two expressions so you, you can see really where our priorities lie um we do a great non-mallow sort of low oak uh bright style chardonnay barrel fermented for six months um, you know, betonage twice a week uh, for the first three months, so it's got great richness without being that sort of typical California Chardonnay profile. Um, we also do Mountains Inn that sits at about 1,500 feet with a little bit of Carignan and Alicante uh, co-fermented within that. So that also in and of itself is a very atypical California profile Zin that uh, when people encounter it are, are often uh, confused but then pleasantly surprised. It's a low alcohol, sort of bright, medium-bodied style Zin that I think is, is pretty great. We very casually within our own team refer to it as our, as our Mountain Burgundy, which will probably confuse a lot of people if they're familiar with big sort of monolithic fruit bomb, high-octane high Zin styles, but it's very different up here. Talk a little bit about the experience of the winery. Tell us a little bit about the tasting room, a little bit about what it's like for visitors coming there. Yeah, our tasting room is pretty great. Um, it is built on top of the original cellar that's been on our property since 1904. Uh, the property was originally inhabited by a uh, sort of medium-sized Italian family that lived up there in, in sort of communal fashion as many of them did at the time. And uh, they built a cellar there using rocks that they quarried from the Chardonnay vineyard right below the sort of shelf um, on which they built the cellar. So it's been standing there since 1904. And it's definitely the coolest feature of, of the property. And, and then on top of that was the, uh, was the taste room, which we sort of placed on top. And, and, uh, and that's where we host. And it's a very sort of uh, relaxed, laid back, um, folksy experience. It's not the super polished, um, one might use the word contrived uh, aesthetic that you occasionally encounter in the lands below us. Um, but I, I think that's one of the biggest advantages of most of the wineries up here is that it's, uh, we're mostly just very aggressively family owned, mostly for better, sometimes for worse, but uh, you really get a unique experience up here um, and you learn a lot about the wines and the family and the story, not just the marketing. And how many acres do you have planted? 47, I think is the exact number. Mm -hmm. uh, the estate itself is about 185. So I, I like to think of our estate as a, as a good example of, of, uh, of Spring Mountain as a whole, which is our, our estate is mostly forest and riparian zone and streams and pocketed within that are, are a few blocks of vineyards. Um, and, and most of the land that we have is actually an untouchable both for private and commercial development for reasons of various ordinances that have been passed in the last 40 years, which I think is great um, in term, from a conservation standpoint. And your dad brought in some solar power years ago, truly ahead of the curve on this. Yeah, he did that. It must have been over 10 years ago at this point. And I think the original um, proposal had in it that they would pay for themselves in seven years, which they did, which is great. Um, I think PG&E capped us at 85% 
um, self-sufficiency. And I think by law, you're not allowed to be 100%, or at least you're not allowed to produce a surplus of energy. Because uh, PG&E, I guess, doesn't want any competition on the electric market, which makes sense. But it's frustrating. So we're, we're about as efficient as we can be. We, we generate power during the day and buy during night. Um, so we're totally power neutral as far as a, a revenue standpoint goes. And talk about where the wines are available. Uh, they're available in most places. California, obviously, is our biggest market. Uh, I, probably that's the case for every winery up here on Spring Mountain. Um, but we're also available in probably 30 different states. Uh, and you're a pretty typical three-tier distribution system. So a lot of, some retail, some restaurants, that kind of thing. Um, and that's, that's the main job that I have here with my dad is, is we spend most of our time out on the road just telling the story until we're blue in the face. Um, You've been here long enough to have roots now. How have you seen Spring Mountain change? Not much, uh, which I think is, is a, a universally a good thing. Um, you know, there have been a few family outposts that have, that have sort of closed their doors in the last six years um, and kind of sold out to um, larger entities. But by and large, you know, 95% of the wineries up here are still incredibly small and, and incredibly independent. So that much has stayed consistent since the 50s. Um, the wines that grow up here are more or less the same. Um, still a lot of heavy emphasis on Merlot, Riesling, Chard, Sauv Blanc, and Cab. Um, what else? Do you have any desire to change the, the balance at all, the mix at all of what you're producing, the amounts over time? Uh, the the volume, to me, I've always looked at the, the volume that we produce of each individual skew, to me, is dictated a largely on, on past demand. We make all the things that we enjoy drinking ourselves, but to me, you know, if the market demands that we produce 6,000 cases of Merlot and 10 cases of Syrah, I'm happy to do that because there'll still be plenty of Syrah for me to drink um, and, and then plenty of Merlot to sell on the market. So, so for me, volumes are less important than, than individual sort of skews that we're producing. So like I said earlier, I'd love to continue to focus on breaking up our larger productions into smaller vineyard focused skews, which I think, I think it's just from, from an educational standpoint, it just makes for a more interesting bottle of wine to drink and learn about. And tell people where you are on the mountain for those that are, are coming up here. I'd say we're probably uh, three quarters of the way up or two thirds of the way up. Uh, our neighbors are Schweiger, Smith Madrone, um, and uh, and uh, we're largely sort of western facing. Well, most of our cab is a southern aspect. We have a lot of Merlot that faces west and north. So there's some cool off aspect vineyards that we have that don't get quite roasted throughout the day, which I think makes for an ideal and very unique situation for Merlot. Um, we've got a long driveway going into our, into our uh, estate. So once you get off the main road, it's about almost a mile before you actually get to our front door. So it's a very isolated experience. And I, I think especially after a long day, if you're stuck down in the valley with a bunch of traffic and a, and a bunch of crowded tasting rooms, Spring Mountain is a, is a really nice sort of peaceful respite um, from, from, the, from the rest of the lower valley. Riley Keenan, Keenan Winery, yeah. thank you so much for sharing some thank of the story you. with us.